preach here in Dundonald this morning as president of the Association of Baptist Churches in Ireland for this year. I'm delighted to be able to bring you greetings in Dundonald from your sister churches across the island of Ireland. And as Richard says, we now have 119 churches. Sadly, Orangefield closed its doors for the last time in August, but just last Saturday, Banbridge Baptist Church was voted back into our association and they'll be received in next May, God willing. We had a good day last Saturday at the November Churches Council held in Armagh Baptist Church. I think we had the biggest turnout for a November Council since 2011 with over 150 representatives present from all over Ireland. As well as voting to receive Banbridge into membership, we also heard reports from the various departments of association life, Baptist Missions, Irish Baptist College, Baptist Women and Baptist Youth. Uh, we agreed an increased budget for 2024 to reflect increase in salaries for our Baptist missions workers and office staff and so on. And we're looking to our churches and individuals to continue to support the work uh, of all these departments as well as they have been in recent years. We also serve notice that we hope to add a line into our statement of faith next May, restricting the office of elder or pastor in an Irish Baptist church to suitably qualified men only. Now that's something that has always been our practice but it has never been written down anywhere. And we believe that that time has now come in the light of the culture in which we're now living. I've continued to visit a number of our churches two Sundays each month throughout my year as president. I've already preached in Newton Ards and in Cumber, and now I'm in Dundonald. And it's good to pick up how those three churches have been working together, looking out for each other and enjoying joint services during last summer and helping one another with various forms of outreach as well. I know I was in Cumber just two weeks ago, and they said how much they really appreciate that help from Dundonald and from Newton R. So keep doing what you're doing. Dr. Johnny McLaughlin has been settling into his new role as the new Irish Baptist College principal. He and Edwin Newitt, Edwin Newitt are having a, a year of overlap, but Johnny will take over from Edwin next May, when Edwin in turn will take on the role of president of our Association of Churches for 2024-25, as I hand that over in May. Andrew McCauley is settling well into his new role as Baptist Youth Director, and Matt Campbell, who he replaced, has moved into a part-time role as Media Coordinator, helping with the publicity for the various departments of our association. He would have put that little video together that you saw Mervyn Scott in a moment or two ago. All of these men are available to preach in our churches, as and when required. A, dis a discussion arose at the Church's Council last Saturday about the need to raise up new pastors, as Richard has just been praying for. And I just want to encourage you as a church here in Dundonald to keep doing what you're doing. I know from being at Tim's induction here in September that as a church you have a strong desire to train up younger men as future pastors and to send them out better equipped to serve in other churches. And Tim Houston's the second assistant pastor you have done that with. It's great to see how Chris Banks is doing since he took up the pastorate in my home church in Malisle earlier this year. And I know he's been a good encouragement, especially to my own brother-in-law, who recently came back to the Lord there. And we praise God for that. So keep on doing what you're doing here in Dundonald. It's so important to train up new men for ministry in our churches. And we're trying to do the same thing in Armagh as well. And finally, can I just mention a personal prayer request? My wife, Judith, took a seizure beside me in bed in the early hours of Thursday morning just two weeks ago. 
had to call an ambulance and she was rushed to hospital in Newry. I'm glad to say that she got home five days later and we've been keeping a very close eye on her ever since. If I'm out of the house, somebody else is sitting there with her just to keep an eye on her in these early weeks. So she's off work until the end of December at least. She's a P3 teacher and she's not allowed to drive for a year. So we would value your prayers as we adjust to our new normal at home. But thank you very much indeed for your thoughts and prayers during what is a very busy year. And with you this morning, back in Armagh tonight, I'm in Ballykeel next Sunday morning, and back in Armagh in the evening. So those two occasions have worked out really well, that I'm just away for half a day on a Sunday this week and next. So let's turn to God's Word, and we're turning to Acts chapter 15. I hope you haven't got that far yet in your Acts series, but we're in Acts chapter 15 this morning, verses 1 to 35, asking the question, why the association? Why the association? Let's come to Scripture, Acts 15 and verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, or Simon Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church 
to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And we pray God's blessing upon that reading of his word to our hearts this morning. It's always a joy at Churches Council to see new churches joining our association. This time a year ago, it was Katie and Bill Turbot and Passage West. And this year coming, it will be Banbridge rejoining the association. I was particularly encouraged to see my old church, Calvin, planting Bill Turbot, and my current church, Armagh, planting Katie, and to see them all coming into membership of the association, because I believe that churches working together for the sake of the gospel is the picture that we find in the New Testament. Some time ago, Paul McAdam, who is now the pastor in Katie, asked me to address this question in the Katie church, why the association? Why would Katie Baptist Church want to join the Association of Baptist Churches in Ireland? Well, we could give many reasons for that, but the only important reason for joining has to come from God's word itself. So the question is, do you find independent churches in the New Testament just doing their own thing? Or do you find a picture of gospel churches run by local pastors and elders reaching out with the gospel in their own area and caring for the believers in their own area but also having a real concern for what, what God is doing in his world through like-minded gospel churches in other areas. In other words, do we see independency or do we see interdependency in the New Testament between churches? I believe we see both. A bit like what you here and Donald are doing with Newton Ards and Cumber. And so I'm bringing you to Acts chapter 15 to show you an example of New Testament churches working together, not just being independent, but looking out for one another as neighboring churches. Acts chapter 15 is a very important passage of scripture. It details the events surrounding the first church's council that was held in Jerusalem. So it's a VIP chapter, a very important passage of scripture. And the gospel itself is at stake in this passage. And that's why these churches met together 
to discuss this very important matter. They associate it around the gospel. And that's what we seek to do here in Ireland, both north and south. We associate around the gospel. As I've gone around a number of churches in the six months or so that have gone by, I discover that you can travel throughout Ireland, north, south, east, and west, and you will not find two Baptist churches that are identical. But you will find them all seeking to proclaim the good news of the gospel, the same way of salvation. They may do it in slightly different ways, culturally speaking, but we associate for the sake of the gospel. We're four square on the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And whether it's the work of Baptist missions or the work of the Irish Baptist College or Baptist youth or Baptist women, this is what we hold in common. We want to see people saved through believing the gospel. We had our church's council last Saturday discussing various issues, but the issue that the first church's council in Jerusalem met to discuss was this. Is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or is salvation by faith plus something else? In this case, keeping the law. The context for this chapter and for the church's council in Jerusalem is the end of the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas to Cyprus and indeed to Asia Minor. That came to an end at the end of Acts 14 and verse 28. And at this point in history, as well as the mother church in Jerusalem, there were also new churches scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, right up to Caesarea. There was also one in Damascus in Syria and a very missionary-minded church in Antioch of Syria. And as a result of the first missionary journey, there were now churches in the island of Cyprus, as well as in Pisidia and Antioch, modern-day Turkey, and also Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. So there's the state of the, uh, of the situation by the time of Acts 15. All of these churches newly planted right across that part of the world. But the crucial point to bear in mind at this moment in history is that there were probably for the first time more believers from a Gentile background in the New Testament church than there were from a Jewish background. So the balance of power has just shifted. So what's really going on behind the scenes in Acts chapter 15 is a power struggle between those who see themselves as the fathers of the church down in Jerusalem, those coming from a Jewish background, and those like Paul and Barnabas, the missionaries to the Gentiles, who now represent the newer churches which are springing up across the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And the gospel itself is at stake at this point in the church's history. It's quite likely that Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians in or around this time, either just before or just after the Jerusalem Council. Just listen to what he said to them about the danger of adopting another gospel. Galatians 1, verses 6 to 9. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. And if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And that's what was on Paul's heart around the time of this Jerusalem church's council. The danger that some of them were moving on to a different gospel, which was no gospel at all. If salvation is not by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, then we have no gospel at all. Because as soon as you add any human effort or merit to it, you have destroyed the gospel. You have emptied the gospel of its power. Either salvation is by grace 
or it is by works, but it can't be both. And this chapter deals with the most serious matter to face the church in its 20-year history. It threatened to divide and destroy the church, and so it needed to be sorted out. It was all about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so first of all, in verses 1 to 4, we have the telling of the gospel or the telling of the good news. Verses 1 to 4, some men came down from Judea, that is to Antioch, and were teaching the, the brothers that unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's what some of them were teaching and preaching. And this is the core issue that in verse 2 brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. That's how the NIV puts it, sharp dispute and debate. Now let me point out before we go any further that there is nothing wrong with having a debate within the church or within local church life. It's good to discuss matters that we hold too strongly, especially points of doctrine. We don't live in a dictatorship or a totalitarian regime as far as the church is concerned. But it's sad whenever such debates become sharp disputes. But it does happen, even here in the New Testament. Acts 15 and verse 2, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. And down at the end of the chapter, chapter 15 and verse 39, and there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. And that was Paul and Barnabas by the end of this chapter. So the beginning of the chapter, there's a sharp dis debate and dispute within the church over the gospel. And at the end of the chapter, a sharp dispute between two of its key uh, leaders, Paul and Barnabas. So what did they do about it? Well, in verse 2, Paul and Barnabas were appointed by the local church in Antioch, along with a number of other believers, and they were sent up to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and elders there about this very question. So they're like representatives of their local church being sent up to gather with other representatives from various churches at the church's council in Jerusalem, just like we did a week or so ago in Armagh, as far as Ireland is concerned. And the question, is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or is salvation by faith plus the works of the law? In this case, circumcision. Is circumcision necessary as well? if someone is to be truly saved. In other words, culturally, does a Gentile have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian? Or can a Gentile go straight to being a Christian without becoming a Jew first? And it's the Antioch church who sends Paul and Barnabas on their way in verse 3. Just as they sent them out on mission to Asia in chapter 13, so now they send them up to Jerusalem to deal with this important matter of doctrine in chapter 15. And this gave Paul and Barnabas the opportunity to speak in many churches along the way as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria. Just as they'd done in Antioch in chapter 14 and verse 27, they tell how God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So now in these churches, they tell how the Gentiles have been converted. Verse 3. So this is the hot topic of the moment as far as Paul and Barnabas and the others were concerned, as they made their way up to Jerusalem, and they get a chance to tell all of these churches how God had brought so many Gentiles to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice the effect that it had on all who heard this news. Verse 3, it brought great joy 
to all the brothers. It brought great joy to all the brothers. When they actually got to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, by the apostles and by the elders. And again, verse 4, they declared all that God had done through them. So the whole church was getting to hear about what God was doing in Asia as far as the conversion of many Gentiles was concerned. It was like deputation talks all away by these returning missionaries. They told the good news of what the Lord had done in the salvation of many Gentiles. But then in verse 5, somebody gets to their feet to undermine the gospel. In verse 5, some people in the church, the churches of Judea, weren't happy with what they were hearing from these men. Emotions were beginning to run high. Some of them felt their blood boiling within them, and now it erupts to the surface in verse 5. These people were believers, but their background, we're told, was the party of the Pharisees. So their background was legalism. And they stood up and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. That's what these folks from a Jewish background Pharisaical background, legalistic background, got up to their feet to say, these Gentiles must be circumcised. They must be ordered to keep the law of Moses. And you know, sadly, this has always been the case in the Christian church. There will always be those who claim to be believers in the gospel of God's grace, that were saved freely by God's grace and not by good works, and yet because their background is in legalism or Phariseeism, they have a tendency to pull others into line to keep their particular set of rules and regulations. You know, legalism is more mindset than a theological position. Those who are prone to be perfectionists tend to be legalists. And it's important for us to recognize the battle that goes on between legalism and grace. And we also need to remember that our gospel is a gospel of grace alone. Therefore, there should be no place for legalism in a gospel church. And yet history tells us that those who have been strongest on preaching the gospel are often the ones who end up in legalism. It's an ongoing battle that we need to be aware of. So how did the early churches address it here in this chapter? Well, we're told in verse 6 that the apostles and elders gathered together to consider this matter. And we're told that it was after much debate as people were given opportunity to air their views, that Peter gets up to address the gathering. So there's been the telling of the gospel and then the undermining of the gospel, and now Peter gets up to defend the gospel in verses 7 to 11. How does the gospel save people? What did Peter believe about this? Verse 7. Well, he believed that people are saved whenever they hear and believe the message of the gospel. That's it. Whenever they hear and believe the message of the gospel, they are saved. They hear that God is holy and that because of our sins we are separated from God, that Jesus, the God-man, came to die for our sins, took our punishment and our place on the cross, so now we can be forgiven by accepting what Jesus has done on our behalf at the cross. We can be forgiven. We can become members in God's family by hearing and believing the gospel. That's all that's required. So as far as Peter was concerned, all we have to do is hear this message and believe it personally for ourselves. In other words, we need to exercise faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
as being sufficient to save us. That's all we need. Faith alone in Christ alone. And by God's grace, we're saved. That's enough. Nothing else is necessary. No pluses are needed. Romans 10, 17 says the same thing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But let's ask a bigger question. What proof is there that simply hearing and believing the gospel is enough to save people? Well, we have, first of all, the evidence of conversion in this passage. The changed lives of those who have simply heard and believed the gospel. Verse 3. Gentiles had been converted, completely changed, just by hearing and believing this message. Lives had been completely transformed, totally changed, simply by trusting in Christ by faith. They'd heard and they'd believed. That's all they'd done. And the change in their lives was dramatic. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And it's God who does the converting, not us. So if God steps into somebody's life, converts them by the gospel, the evidence of the change in their lives speaks volumes for the simplicity of the gospel. The evidence that the Holy Spirit was given to those who simply heard and believed the gospel is also mentioned in verse 8. God had shown his acceptance of those who had exercised faith in the gospel by placing his Holy Spirit into their hearts. Ephesians 1 and verse 3, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And of course, what Peter is referring to here in Acts chapter 15, he's thinking back to Cornelius' household in Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 48, where Peter had first experienced Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. He entered that home in fear and trepidation, something that no self-respecting Jew would ever have done before, but moved and guided by the Holy Spirit, he does just that. And as he preaches the gospel to them, they simply hear it and they believe it. And the Holy Spirit falls on them. In fact, before he'd even finished preaching his sermon, the Holy Spirit interrupted the sermon and came to dwell in the hearts and lives of those who were listening, even though they'd come from a Gentile background. All they had to do was hear and believe, and they received the Holy Spirit very evidently. And then we have the evidence of hearts being purified by faith on hearing and believing in verse 9. God made no distinction between a Jew and a Gentile who had believed. He purified each of their hearts simply because they put their faith in Christ. Not because of any ceremony or ritual washing or baptism or circumcision they may or may not have received. They were simply purified in their hearts, cleansed from their sin by faith alone in Christ alone. That's all that mattered. And then in verse 14, Peter refers to the evidence that God is calling out a people for himself. This people that God is calling out of the world is his church. It's made up of both Jews and Gentiles. The word for church is ecclesia, ex calio, to call out of. Those who put their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone become part of God's redeemed people, his church, his covenant people by faith. So Jew and Gentile in the Acts, and Catholic and Protestant today in Ireland, or Muslim or Hindu around the world, all become part of God's people, the church, in exactly the same way. It's by faith alone, in Christ alone. 
all because of God's grace, not because any of us has earned it or merited it. And so Peter comes to his conclusion in verse 11. On the basis of all this evidence, Peter could summarize his position as follows. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. Verse 11. So he's saying Jew and Gentile alike get saved in exactly the same way. Salvation is by God's grace, his unmerited favor alone. God's salvation is for those who don't think they deserve it. Maybe that includes you. Maybe you're sitting here on a Sunday morning in Dundonald Baptist Church and you think you don't deserve to be saved. Well, then it's for you. God can save you by his grace even now this morning. To try to work for it by keeping the law or by being circumcised or even by being baptized as an infant or in any other way would mean salvation would not be by grace but by merit. If salvation is to be by God's grace then it can only be by faith alone in Christ alone. So Peter sits down after his contribution to the Jerusalem church's council. And Paul and Barnabas get to their feet to endorse the gospel in verse 12. They get to their feet to endorse the gospel in verse 12. All the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. You know, some people try to drive a wedge <clears throat> between what the Apostle Paul taught in the New Testament and what Peter, one of the original 12 apostles, taught. But it's important for us to notice that on this foundational truth of the gospel, they were absolutely at one with each other. No sooner has Peter given his speech than Paul and Barnabas hold the audience in rapt attention as they tell of their recent exploits in Asia. All the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. They were amazed at it themselves, and their listeners were equally amazed. But if God was pleased to perform signs and wonders of salvation among the Gentiles, just as he had done among the Jews, then this was further evidence that God accepts Gentiles on exactly the same basis as Jews. It is by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, that God works. And Paul and Barnabas had plenty of recent stories to back up the evidence that Peter had just presented. And that brings us to James's summary of the gospel in verses 13 to 21. Who's James? Well, James was the leader of the Jerusalem church. We believe he was a half-brother of Jesus. As chairman of the church's council that day, it's his job to summarize all that has just been discussed. And he does this in verses 13 following. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, or Simon Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. So here he's referring to Peter's account of Cornelius and his household being the first Gentiles to respond to the gospel of God's grace. And then James goes on to give the biblical basis for this in verse 15. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, he says. Just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. So that refers to the Jews. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. 
So James look for, looks for biblical basis in the Old Testament. He finds it, and he speaks about Jews being restored to the Lord, and he speaks about Gentiles being called to salvation by the Lord as well. So having carefully considered the evidence of how God accepts the Gentiles who believe on exactly the same basis as the Jews who believe, and having listened to how Paul and Barnabas have been blessed to see many conversions, and having found biblical warrant for all that they'd said and done, James gives his conclusion in verse 19. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. But we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. Why? For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. That was their conclusion. Not to make it any more difficult for Gentiles to be converted. Not to insist that they should be circumcised or become Jews. But simply to accept them as Christians like themselves on the basis of personal faith in Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior. And the only stipulation they put on them was to ask them to bear in mind the scruples of their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. People from a Jewish background couldn't cope with Gentile believers indulging in food that had been polluted by idols. People from a Jewish background couldn't cope with Gentile believers indulging in sexual immorality, nor should they. And they couldn't cope if they went to church to a church lunch and knew that the meat had come from animals that were not killed in a kosher way, that didn't have the blood properly drained out of it. So the only stipulations put on the Gentiles who were turning to Christ were really matters of cross-cultural sensitivity. Respect for their weaker brothers, those who'd come from a strict Jewish background. So all of this was an attempt to keep unity within the church. Now that the Gentile believers were increasing in number beyond those who had come from a Jewish background. So what was the outcome? Well, the outcome of the Jerusalem Church's Council was the whole church united around the gospel. And that's the remainder of the passage, verses 22 to 35. The whole church united around the gospel. Now that everything had been agreed, the apostles and elders in Jerusalem, together with the whole church, thought it would be a good idea to write a letter from the church's council and to appoint certain representatives to take this letter to the various churches that had already been planted in the rest of Asia. So two men were chosen from Jerusalem, Judas and Silence, and they were sent with Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch with the letter from the council. And this is what was contained in the letter, verses 23 to 29. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greeting. Since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no such instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. 
that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So do you hear their desire not to put any stumbling block in the way of more Gentiles coming to know the Lord? Do you hear their desire not to put any extra burden on them as newborn Christians? And I wonder sometimes, do we have the same concern not to load new believers, newcomers to Christ with 101 rules and regulations for them to try to follow? If we do, it's not the gospel, but legalism that we're introducing them to. The early church stuck to the gospel of God's grace, not legalism, and so must we. And so the men were sent off in verse 30, and they headed back to Antioch where again they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. And look what happened. Verse 31, when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They were accepted as fellow believers with the Jews, even though they'd come from a Gentile background, even though they had not been circumcised. They were accepted on the same level as believers. And anything that the wider church required of them in terms of practice was simply for their own good. They had no other burden placed on them than that. And so Judas and Silas stayed around for a while in Antioch, ministering to and encouraging the believers there. And so throughout that period, believers from a Jewish background and a Gentile background were enjoying wonderful unity and fellowship in the Lord, united around the gospel of God's grace that had accepted both of them on exactly the same basis, faith in Christ alone, not law not works, not legalism, not circumcision, all of those things were seen as secondary. And at the end of their time in Antioch, Judas and Silas were sent back to Jerusalem with the blessing of the Antioch church resting upon them. And so the predominantly Jewish church centered in Jerusalem and the predominantly Gentile church centered in Antioch were completely united. The deliberation about the gospel became a cause for unity in the church rather than division and a church that was threatening to split that was avoided and from that point onwards they got on with church planting in the remainder of the book of acts paul and barnabas continued to minister in antioch as part of a team from verse 35 onwards so in conclusion what can we learn from this very important passage of scripture today well on your association sunday I want you to realize that all our churches in this island agree on one thing, and that is the gospel. The same gospel that the first apostles preached. The gospel that this first church's council in Jerusalem protected and endorsed. That salvation for everyone, regardless of their cultural or religious background, is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And you know, sometimes it takes churches to get together in council to reaffirm these matters, especially in the days in which we live, when everything seems to be up for grabs. Nothing is set on concrete. Everything is fluid and open to challenge. We have to continue to help one another as churches across this island to stick to the gospel. And membership of the Association of Baptist Churches allows us to look out for one another it allows us to keep one another accountable on the gospel. And it allows us to work together for the advance of the gospel through the work that we do together, whether that's in Baptist missions, in Ireland, France, Spain, and Peru, 
or whether that's in the Irish Baptist College as we train men and women, future gospel workers for our churches for the years to come, or in Baptist youth or Baptist women as we train up young people and women in the gospel and in Christian discipleship. So why the need for the association? Because we see it as modeled for us in Scripture in the early chapters of Acts, but also because we can do more together than any of us can ever do on our own. And so as an association of churches across this island, we can work together in sending out missionaries. We can work together in raising up new gospel workers. We can work together for the sake of our young people and the women as well as the men of our churches. We can do more together than any of us can ever do on our own. So I simply want to encourage you this morning to continue to work together with the likes of Newton Ards and Cumber in the days to come, your local sister churches, as well as cooperating together as part of the association for the wider work of our churches throughout this island and further afield as well. May God bless his word to our hearts uh, this morning. We're going to sing together for the cause, and then Richard's going to look after the Lord.